My name is Tracy Moore. I'm the host of City Line and the host of City Line Real on Pride. This is a series that we've been really enjoying getting into the issues during this Pride. And it's conversations that will, you know, continue way past Pride. Today, we are talking about BIPOC queerness. So we are attempting to understand what being a person of color and also 2S LGBTQ plus means. And we're looking at that intersectionality, the intersection between race and sex and gender. And it's going to be a great conversation because I'm with great people. So please welcome uh, activist and scholar, Dr. Cyrus Marcus Ware. We also have multidisciplinary artist Vivek Shreya with us today and journalist and activist Chevy Rabbit joining us as well. So I'm going to start actually by talking about, you know, this myth. Maybe it is a myth, maybe it isn't a myth, but that BIPOC communities are way less accepting of uh, anything outside of the binary. Now, Vivek, if you could talk to us a little bit about your experience Coming out to your family, um, and did you find that there was a, a lack of acceptance? Yeah, I mean, I love this question because it's something I'm really passionate about, especially because I do think it's a bit of a myth, and it, I do think it's rooted in racism, to be honest. So I, I do get this question asked a lot. So how do your parents feel, or what do your parents think? And again, like I said, I think at the core of that question is this idea that because I'm a person of color, and because my parents are immigrants, that they couldn't possibly love me, they couldn't possibly accept me. And, you know, that's definitely not been my experience. I mean, do my parents use language like transgender and queer? No, but I think what has been exciting and, and you know, certainly challenging at times, but still fascinating for me has been giving my parents the space to see me for who I am and me learning to accept their acceptance. You know, like when I'm in Little India and in Edmonton, my mom makes sure that I get like the best deals on bangles and, you know, bindis and that sort of thing. Like I can't think of a better form of acceptance than that. So I think in POC communities, at least with my experience, acceptance doesn't necessarily look like uh, rainbow flags and pride parades. I think sometimes it looks different, but uh, it feels really important to acknowledge that those gestures of acceptance are still acceptance. You had a good story about a, a white bestie that you had at the time who uh, also came out and had a very different experience. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, when I was growing up, I remember just so badly wanting to have a cool mom and my best friend's mom, who was white, had a cool mom. And by cool mom, I mean knew all the lyrics to Jagged Little Pill, which my, my grandma did not know. <laughs> and, you know, I just remember just like wanting that so bad. And what was so interesting is that we both ended up being queer. But when he came up to his mom, she like, you know, and again, she was the cool mom. She had Melissa Etheridge albums, you know. When he came out to her, she didn't talk to him for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? So for me, again... I think it's so important to remember that, like, you know, it's not just POC parents that have problems accepting us. Like, in, in fact, I've, I've experienced a lot of, like, white people who had negative experiences with their parents accepting them. And if anything, I feel like my mom, her culture means she has to love me. Like, the idea of disowning me, the idea of not speaking to me, like, in her idea of her, like, in the context of her religion and culture, those are just not options. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, Chevy, how about you? Uh, You say your mom created a really strong uh, sort of love and affection for you. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, I grew up um, in Tanoka in Muskegee. uh, There's four nations called Muskegee. And uh, I grew up in a very loving community, very loving family. And my mother, when I came out at 13, she just asked if I wanted for breakfast, which is like a non-issue. We went on with our day. There was no spotlight. There was nothing negative about it. And I, I'm really grateful for that moment because then I knew then I would always be loved. And she said, are you ha- happy with yourself? Do you accept yourself? I said, yes. And then she said, well, I love you. That's beautiful. I think as an Indigenous people, like a lot of Indigenous communities, at the core, we everybody has a place. Everybody in the family loves each other. It's kinship. They call it Wagotwin. It's a free word. And it's all about we're all connected and I think as Indigenous people we're very accepting. I'm happy you had a good experience. Last week on the show we had Geraldine Papio, also from uh, an Indigenous community and she had a really (laughs) hard time because I think that we can't forget that the you know our communities are also dealing with the effects of colonialism so even if the you know the intention and the origins are beautiful and kind and giving it's like we've all sort of been poisoned by a lot of these systems so I love to hear this from you Chevy that it was a you know an open and accepting situation yeah I I understand like residential schools did come in they made an impact they taught a lot of committees how to date each other or even hate themselves and then also the indifference from of LGBT people. And there is communities out there, because as an advocate, I'm out there speaking, just because my story is rare and I have this very loving family that could have just bubbled this protection for me and this safety net. Uh, I know that's not a, a lived experience for a lot of people. There's two-spirit people who are transgender living up in Northern Alberta and different communities that are highly impacted by colonialism and residential schools. And they're, they're pushed on the fringe of society because they're not accepted. Then they'll move to the cities where they experience hate and racism and often pushes them right to the boundaries of society. You know, we can't get housing. There's all these different issues that go on with transphobia and being a double discrimination. Absolutely, yeah. Cyrus, talk to me a little bit about your family, how they reacted. Was there uh, was there a lot of acceptance? Was there less acceptance? Well, it's interesting that we're talking about, you know, talking about race because I'm from a mixed-race family. So I have a white mom and a black mother. And when I came out as queer, I came out at, at a young age, I came out at 14 and they had a hard time. They really had a hard time in the beginning, but it was mostly my mom. My mom was the one who had the hardest time with it. And my dad was like, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, my mom is the one who was white. Right. So, so there in, in my family, it was actually the white person who had the hardest time with it. But I will say that what I'm seeing more of is families, you know, doing the work and my family did the work. They committed to learning, committed to to teaching each other. They committed to correcting each other. They committed to, uh, to learning how to, to live their politics because they, they, they fundamentally did believe in the idea that we should all be treated equally. They just were having a hard time with this, you know, in their family, they, you know, a lot of people do. So they really came a long way and they've, they've taught people in their communities, they've taught people in their lives uh, how to be allies to queer and trans people. And so they've come a long way and I'm very thankful of that. So now I will say, yes, I come from a very accepting family, a family that marches with me in the trans march that holds the banners, that carries the placards, that does all of it because they're they're really committed. Beautiful. Can you tell me a little bit about your twin and what was that that was like? Because it's like when you are, you know, almost you're sharing looks and you shared time in the womb together. And then at some point you end up going different ways. Like I wonder how that would be what that would be like. 
yeah, I came out as trans in the year 2000. And, um, you know, it was very difficult because we are, my twin and I are identical twins. Like we are identical twins. So we are those twins that could always play the tricks at school because we looked that much alike. And here I was coming home and saying, I want to do something that's going to make me look really different from you. And, you know, it wasn't that I was trying to look different from her. I was just trying to look more like myself. And for me, that involved medical transition and chemical transition. So, you know, it was very hard for her at first. But again, that trust that was built, I guess, when we were roommates, you know, in the womb, we really, you know, fundamentally she was there and she came to be one of my greatest supporters. And then in the end, she ended up having a trans kid. You know, she has a, a son who transitioned at five. He's now 13. And, um, you know, she's been the most an incredible parent, trans, trans a parent of a trans kid, uh, you know, doing all of the research, doing all the education, being an advocate for him, really making sure that he has everything that he needs so that he can drive. So again, you know, she she's really come a long way. And we talked about it recently, you know, we talked about it, it's like, you know, I was a bit sad. We were not going to be immediately recognizable as identical twins. A lot of people think we're fraternal because they don't understand boy-girl twins could be identical. So, you know, that's lost, but, uh, but all this other stuff that we've doing. Amazing. Vivek, I'm going to go to you now, uh, because you say it was not easy growing up brown and queer identifying in Edmonton. And you say, actually, when you look back, you can't believe you survived it. Can you give us a bit of a window into your world back then? Sure. Yeah. You know, I think I was like a very carefree child. Like I remember my mom went to like parent-teacher interviews and like one of the feedback that um, she got when I was in elementary school is physics not self-conscious enough, which I now looking back, it seems like a terrible thing <laughs> for a teacher to tell uh, a parent. Like I, I, I missed the days of not being self-conscious, but yeah, that's sort of like how I was when I look at early photos of myself, like very joyful, very happy. And then basically from grade seven to grade 12, I was taunted every day verbally, so called Gaylord. I don't know. I know that this is not a used word anymore, (laughs) Uh, but Gaylord and Fag every single day. And I think the hardest thing about learning who you are at that age is um, learning who you are through hatred, right? Like, I didn't know what Gaylord meant. I didn't know what Fag meant. And I didn't know what my sexuality was. And I also didn't know what my gender was. Like all these things, like I didn't have any of these words, but I knew that whatever words that were being thrown at me were hate. And then to discover that I was actually queer, that somehow everyone could see something about myself that I didn't really understand too. And then I had to like either embrace it or disavow it. And I, I chose the latter, right? I chose to, you know, destroy a lot of my feminine gestures. Even now, like when I hear myself talk, I'm like, you don't have to drop your voice. Like you can just talk normal, whatever that means. But I was, I'm, I've trained myself from like 18 to into my 20s, like just how to perform masculinity as a form of safety. So, you know, I think that needless to say, it, it, it was a very, very traumatic experience. And I feel like queer people are robbed of time because unlike, you know, non-queer people or straight people who get to just live their 20s, um, I feel like so much of my 20s was trying to heal from the trauma of my teens. And then going from that, you know, that bold uh, unself-consciousness to all of a sudden feeling, you know, like you don't know what you're about. That's an awful transition for anyone to go through. So I understand what you say there. You talk about performing masculinity as survival. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about 
safety because safety is an important part of the conversation. And I feel like we've got a lot of work to do um, in terms of making sure everybody feels safe in this country. So I'm going to go Chevy to you because I know that there was a, a fairly seminal moment that happened with you and it was, it was a hate assault, but it, it radicalized you and, and had you starting some of the activist work that you do. Could you take us back to that moment? I moved to U of A. Uh, my mom was so worried. She said, I'm worried that you're too, like, too open, too free. And I didn't understand it. I didn't process it at the time. And so I was working as a makeup artist for Western Canada Fashion Week, working at Cold Front Crew. And all my friends are in fashion. They're doing fashion hair and makeup. And so I was very self-expressive within that bubble. And then going to U of A, learning about Indigenous uh, history, learning about trauma and all that kind of stuff. So really just really finding myself. And I feel like when I got beat up by three men on my way to get groceries, it really radicalized me. But it also, it really opened up my eyes to a different worldview, uh, that there are people out there that don't like me just simply because either I'm Indigenous or very self-expressive. So I think what happened in that moment, there's two worlds colliding, deep ignorance and free self-acceptance and love and acceptance. And then I got beat up at that moment. I had two choices, either solve me get angry or use my voice and raise change. It's been almost a decade now of raising awareness right across the city, right across the province. Incredible. Because a situation like that can motivate you either way. Yes. You can really turn in on yourself and just say, forget it. This world is full of hate and yeah, I'm, yeah, I don't yeah. want to deal with it. Vex like me. <laughs> no, but you are you are doing all of this incredible work through your art, Vivek. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that. You're a multidisciplinary artist and you are a pop star, which is what you wanted to be, right? Tell me a bit about that journey. Yeah. So I mean, I think that I learned at a very young age that art could be a place where I could safely express myself. And that, you know, you know, certainly, especially in my religious organization, actually, being like a dancing, prancing boy was actually seen as beautiful. It was seen as sacred. You know, in Hinduism, Krishna is like this beautiful, long-haired, pretty boy who like plays music and dances and prances all day. So me being like creative was actually seen as wonderful in the context of my religious space. So I think I just gravitated towards art in that way and certainly music as well. Like there was nothing like being in my room and listening to you know, an Apple album and just feeling seen in a way that I wasn't anywhere else. And so it's not shocking that like I, I decided that that was the path that I wanted to take and make music first and foremost. That's where my artistic journey started. But about 10 years ago, because my music career wasn't working the way I wanted it to, I found myself being creative in other ways. And I wrote my first collection of short stories, God Loves Hair. And that's when I started exploring themes like being queer, being uh, gender non-conforming. And it was writing that first book that kind of opened me up more as an artist where I'm like, wow, there's a lot I want to say. There's a lot of like anger I have. There's a lot of hurt I have. There's so much I want to change about the world. And I think writing that book, I was like, there, art can do that. Art can actually, in, in a lot of ways that other things can't, art can actually, I have witnessed people go from here to here after engaging with art, not my art necessarily, but just art. And so that's why I think I've been so passionate about being an artist because I've seen how transformative it can be. Absolutely. Since we're talking about art, Cyrus, jump in here because this is your world as well, right? You are an artist. You know, you you told us a little bit about actually a, a an awful, horrific story that happened at a museum, I think, years ago. 
and I'd like to talk about that and I don't want to get stuck on the trauma, but I think it's important to mention these stories because I need people to understand the gravity of folks not feeling safe right now and, and feeling like they cannot drink water because if they have a full bladder, they've got to use the washroom and there might be a confrontation in the washroom. That is something that should not be happening anywhere in the world and it's happening. So can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, and I think that it's important to to put it in the context that it happened in a museum. It happened in an art space. And I think that we like to think that in the arts, there's room for all of the so-called freaks and weirdos to let their freak flags fly and just be, you know, these weirdo artists. But, you know, in this museum context, I uh, had to go to the bathroom and I went into the bathroom and there was only one stall. It was the men's bathroom. I'd been using the men's bathroom for at that point for you know years. And I went into the stall and another man had come in at the same time as this white man. And I, I went into the stall. I need to use the stall to, to, to go to the bathroom. I can't stand to pee. So I went to go use the stall and, uh, and the, the person who got really mad and was like, why are you in this bathroom? Why are you in this bathroom? And I just locked the door and just tried to stay in there. And then he got more and more angry to the point where he was banging on the doors of the stall, rattling on the doors of the stall. I thought he was going to rip the door off and be completely senseless. This is how angry he was. And then finally he said, I'll let you, I'll, I'll leave you to do whatever you're doing in there. And then like stormed out. And now I really have to be because of course I had to be before I had this interaction. And, it, and the interaction lasted maybe five or seven minutes but it may as well have lasted 45 minutes, but I couldn't leave the stall. I was so afraid that I was going to leave the stall and he would be outside the bathroom door that I didn't leave the bathroom for like 40 minutes because mm. I was so shook up. And when I, you know, confronted, I told the folks at the museum what had happened. They said, well, we don't really want to get anybody in trouble here. You know, I think that this is the thing is that I'm in 2021 pushing for us to support trans kids who are going through what I went through. They're trying to be able to have bathrooms that they can use in their schools, in their places, wherever they go. And, and I don't want ki- trans kids having the experience that I had, you know, where I was a grown man and I was terrified. Imagine for these young kids who, with all these bathroom bills that are being passed, who don't have the ability to just literally urinate when they need to urinate, which is a human function that we should all have the right to do. Then it's important to know that it is happening in these creative spaces too. It's happening in spaces that are supposed to be the so-called safer spaces. Absolutely. And I think that that is actually a really good segue um, back to Chevy, because we talk about these art spaces. And the biggest lesson I think I have learned, I would say starting maybe in 2020 is when it really became solidified, is that this whole idea of there being a liberal left that would have everyone's backs is actually a lot of BS. I think you have to be careful about feeling that when you're in certain spaces, you're automatically safe. And if we're talking about art and, and creatives, Chevy, you were a makeup artist. Are you still a makeup artist? Yeah. No, I'm not a makeup artist anymore. I found that when I was being creative, it was fun as a gay vendor food man. People were more accepting. And I found for me, when I started coming out with trans and towards the hormone treatments, it became non-existent. A lot of my clients didn't want a trans woman doing makeup on them, but they also didn't want an activist. I was once told to shut up and do makeup. Why do you have to do all of this? And so I think there's two things going on. There's gender identity. And then the fact that I'm very outspoken and I'm recognized as an outspoken activist. And a lot of clients didn't want that around them. I I found, unless I'm doing like a charity event that's for a social cause, but the private prestige clients I found didn't want that. They just wanted a makeup artist. 
And these are cis hat women. Yeah. I find like in my personal life, a lot of women very love and accept and people get it. But I found their makeup clients didn't really want a trans woman doing their makeup. And that's what I found. My makeup career is non-existent now. I sit on a number of boards. I'm a journalist now. So I've evolved and changed as a, a professional to the patchwork gap. I'm now using time that uh, I'm a new passion. My passion was beauty makeup for a long time. And now all the focus, any spare time I have is about creating change for people like ourselves. Yeah, you're doing incredible work. I'm wondering, I'm going to stick with you for a sec, Chevy, because I'd like to know, have you seen an evolution? I mean, you started with a very supportive mom. So I mean, that's a great place to start. Have you seen an evolution in your communities or the communities you circulate within when it comes to your transness? Have things evolved? How would you describe it? I would say that people have been very supportive in my life. My family's still supportive. Whoever I want to be, they're always back me. But in terms of the communities, I think two things going on is very, I love you. I love you. And you're amazing. You're doing great work. And there's complete hate. So I find as a public figure and somebody who's creating change at the forefront, it comes as a double-edged sword because you have people who both literally target you and yell at you. So I find that very frightening. But I also find the love and support of me receiving amazing. How do you deal with that? Well, now I have thick skin. <laughs> initially, I would have fell apart. And I think from when I got assaulted, initially I, have, I do have PTSD from that. But I've worked on it over the last decade. And I think now at this point, unfortunately, I've normalized it. And I recognize it as part of the work that I do, which is really sad. because I know some people out there can live their lives, their authentic selves, and never experience that kind of normalizing violence. Like There might be somebody who doesn't agree with me. They're going to yell at me because of the work I do and how I present myself, which is sad that I can't get self-respect and be valued for who we are as individuals right now. Mm-hmm. Vivek, I'm going to ask you the same question. Have you seen an evolution within your communities uh, and how the people around you have dealt with your identity? I'm always hesitant with this kind of question because I, <laughs> I always worry that when people hear that it's gotten hashtag better, then it means that we can all just chill out and relax. And so I'm always like, no, 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 no. lots of work to still do. <laughs> but, you know, one thing I will say is that my life has taken a, a really strange journey is that I've ended up back in Alberta. You know, I was living in Toronto for 15 years and I never ever thought that I would come back here. But then I was fortunate getting a teaching job out here. And I was very, very nervous to return to essentially the site of trauma, the classroom as a trans person, as a trans feminine person and what that would be like. And, you know, like will students use my pronouns and then all that stuff. But like, I actually have to say that it's been quite healing doing this job because I stand in front of a classroom, you know, like this as a trans person, you know, my, I I tell them on the first day of class that my pronouns are she and her, that they can call me Miss Shreya. And like, you know, to this day, like I've been really fortunate that I, you know, I haven't been misgendered in the classroom. I've actually had more no colleagues misgender me, but my students have not. And I mean, again, I don't want to over romanticize it. Part of it is the power dynamic where like I am their teacher, I grade them. So I think that there is always that desire to please. But the, the less cynical side of me feels very, very moved. And again, I think there's a lot of, especially when I lived in Ontario, that I felt like there's a sort of like stereotype of what Alberta actually is. And I have to say that like being here, you know, and again, I'm, I'm so fortunate to, to be a guest here, but like to be seen by my students in that way has just, yeah, it's just felt really healing. Amazing. Cyrus, how about you? We're never going to co-sign the, sign the message that all the work is done. So everybody just go take a nap. There is work <laughs> to be done. But when you look around in, in, in your communities and 
you know, uh, the people around you or the institutions around you? How do you feel about how things are now? Well, I think that things are the way that they are now because of the tireless activism of trans people, in particular trans women of color, you know, who have been fighting for decades for justice. So when I came out in the year 2000, I mean, the year 2000, if you can imagine, there was literally no programs, no resources, no support. You know, everything was still centralized in the gender identity clinic, which was quite transphobic. There was very little out there. I'm happy to say my trans nephew has access to a lot of support and a lot of resources. He has so many books, he can't read them all. He's got resources so that when my sister went to the school board to say, hey, my kid is socially transitioned, she had resources she could download off the internet to bring to the teachers to help them understand. So there's all of these things that we have now, but I don't want to make it to my favorite son because I mentioned trans kids still need to be able to clean trans kids still need to be able to play sports, trans people need to get to live long enough to become elders. These are the things that we're still fighting for. But to be able to celebrate the wins that we do have, I think is a good thing. But we need to celebrate and honor the Black, Indigenous, and POC trans women, mostly, who are doing the labor to make sure that we got here. Solidarity and shout out to them always, always leading the movement. You mentioned activism, and I know that you've been on the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a very inclusive movement. Tell me a little bit about being a part of that movement and and seeing, I mean, we're seeing conversations, language being used that I would never think we would hear or see on in mainstream spaces. So talk to me a bit about that fight and that journey. Being in the movement for Black Lives and being part of Black Lives Matter has been incredible because it is this queer and trans-led movement. And I think that not everybody totally gets how rooted in queer and trans politics it is. When I joined the Black Lives Matter Toronto team, not only was I not the only trans person, there were three other trans people, but those other trans people all happened to be twins. So there was this team full of trans twins who were doing this work. So, you know, there, there, there are there's this visible presence of trans leadership within this movement. And that means that the work looks different. The work has a different aesthetic, has a different quality. You know, there are artists in this movement. And so, you know, there, there are these ways that we use these artistic activisms to create work. Black Lives Matter as a movement has opened up a conversation for us to talk about intersectionality, to talk about structural change, talk about Black and Indigenous solidarity, talk about trans justice, to talk about disability justice, and to talk about all of it in order to transform our social world so that we all get to be freer. So if we, you know, think about these trans heroes who did such incredible work like Marcia P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and Storm DeLavery and all of these incredible folks, how do we continue on their fight again and ensure that we, we win this victory? Well, we, you know, we continue to push and ensure that queer and trans stories are part of our Black activism which is what is so core to this Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm very thankful. I'm so thankful now that we have defund the police in our vocabulary and that there's these conversations about abolition. I've been an abolitionist for 25 years and it's been hard to get that conversation started. But thanks in in large part to to organizing CPLM, more and more people are talking about the idea of reinvesting in our communities and reinvesting uh, in, in, in people. Uh, rather than in the piece, and that that you know gives me a lot of hope in the future. I think also that Cyrus is being a bit humble. Like I, I really feel like so grateful for the work that Cyrus has done as someone who you know is old. I'm older in life, 
but like I, I feel like I grew up with Cyrus as like a role model in community and just like I came out as trans like almost two decades later and I, I would not be trans without Cyrus and the work that Cyrus has done. So I feel really, really grateful for, for you and I'm sorry, I'm just getting really emotional, but yeah. So, I mean, please, I, I think it's so important to acknowledge that. Yes, I, I think it's so easy for us to go back to certain key figures and it's so important that we do that, but I think it's also important that we honor the, the work that is also happening in real time. And Cyrus has been sort of at the forefront of a number of movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Makarama. Like I've just, I've, I've witnessed that over like two decades. So thank, thank you, Cyrus. Thank <laughs> so much. Beautiful. It's not lost on me that it is a very big deal, uh, I find, to be in this space and have folks like you three relive your trauma and talk about your joy and successes as well. But I know it's not, an, it's not a lighthearted thing to do. And so I, I really do thank you for that. And on that note, I want to know, like, outside of the incredible work that you three are doing, what is the work that needs to happen outside of the trans community? Because the heavy lifting, we can see it, Cyrus, Vivek, Chevy, we see the heavy lifting. Where does the work now need to continue and flow to so that, you know, you're not carrying the load alone? And anyone can answer this. Anyone can, can jump in and answer this one. Well, I think we should actually elect more visibility of people of color, people who are trans within politics. People see that. And I think we need more, we need the public to say they're electable because I've been a, a campaign manager for a number of candidates over the couple of years. Uh, and I find through the work that I've done as a campaign manager to financial offices for some federal and provincial candidates, I find that if you're a person of color, especially trans, it's really hard to get elected. People have to see you as one of them get elected if you're too different they won't elect you and i find it very difficult so i think that's where we need to start we need people we need to see ourselves in the governments that represent us very good point i love that anyone else want to add to that i'll just say that you know i think that one of the things that we really we need is we need all of our cis friends family loved ones allies to get involved in action we're looking for commitment and for solidarity uh, not just statements but but actual action. So in anywhere that you have purvey over uh, decision-making, you should be writing policies, arranging bathrooms, making sure that uh, the forms and the documents have gender options, that there are, uh, that trans people are imagined and anticipated in the spaces that you're, that you're coming into. So that when the first trans person comes there, you know, they don't have a bad experience. You've done some of the work to do the groundwork. Well said. Thank you. The stories, the challenges, the successes, the activism, all of it is inspiring for all of us. And this concludes City Line Reel on Pride, our uh, four-part series. Please go back to all of the episodes and keep these conversations going. We covered a lot of area in these four episodes. We love being able to hold this space and, and have these conversations. 